May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be free from harm. May all beings love life. May all beings awaken. Welcome to another QQ Audio Podcast. I'm D.C. Puba of QQ Audio and QQ Archives, doing our bit to help preserve the legacy of Shunju Suzuki and those whose paths cross his and anything else that comes to mind. I pray that you and yours are safe and comfortable, free from economic hardship, and able to get out and do whatever it is you want within the limitations of the universal precept of do as little harm as possible. So today we have a guest, Rico Provisoli. Uh, uh, Rico first came to the San Francisco Zen Center, Bush Street in 1967 to visit his brother Paul Provisoli and uh, spent some time at Tassajara. And then his path took many twists and turns and uh, went various interesting places and uh, uh I think you'll enjoy following them and see where he ended up. Now, Rico uh, has a website, Rico Provisoli, R-I-C-O-P-R-O-V-A-S-O-L-I dot M-E. And you can see there about the two books he's written, Please Don't Tell My Guru, and Golf Between the Ears. So as soon as we've had our pause to meditate, we'll give Rico a call. So when you hear the bell, if you're of such a mind, hit pause and meditate or whatever for as long as you wish. And when you're ready to come back, hit unpause. And we'll be here to hit the bell to end the meditation or whatever, and give Rico Provisoli a call. Yeah, Rico, David Chadwick. Who? David Chadwick. David Chadwick. It says your call is coming from Indonesia. Well, I live in Bali. Ah, well, that makes all the sense in the world. <laughs> yeah. Hey, David, I thought you lived in Marin or something. I have lived a great deal in Marin and in Sonoma. And uh, in San Francisco and Monterey County. Huh. Uh, but right, I've, last 10 years, I've been here in Bali. God, you know how to live. <laughs> well, it's great. <laughs> it's nice there. We, we like it there, too. <laughs> but uh, can't afford it. 
<laughs> so, hey, Rico, uh, uh, can we talk now for a podcast? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. I'd like to. Good. Well, I'm already recording you. Can you hear me okay? I put you on speakerphone. Uh, yeah, it's all right. Let me hear. Let me hear more. Or if you want, I could put on some uh, some headphones. That's better. Hold on. Uh, I've got an idea. Let's. Uh, hey, you know this sounds good. Come. This sounds good right now. Okay. Yeah, you can. Uh, you you know you might feel more free with headphones, but um, this is fine. We're doing. We're, this is great. Yeah, you're coming across fine. All right. Well, so hey, Rico. Well. What what are you up to? Well, what am I up to on an existential level, an emotional level, or a neurological level? Or I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> everything is fine. I'm uh, I'm turning seventy six very shortly. I've survived the widow maker that nobody ever does collapse at the hospital front door, and um, they kept me. I was clinically dead for seven hours where they gave me a new new plumbing, all the coronary arteries. Wow. So uh, I'm going strong, and uh, I've got a pretty good-sized property here in Marin. And I had wind damage, and I just finished a 60-foot fence there, and then I had water damage on an external cottage, and I'm just finished putting siding on that, so... I stay busy. Wow. Hey, uh, when did uh, you have this um, uh, very serious health problem? Uh, uh, December 6, 2018, I dropped in front of the on the front door of the hospital. Which hospital? So I'm, I'm uh, Kaiser San Rafael. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I've I've spent uh, I have had Kaiser in San Rafael. Uh, mainly in uh, Sonoma, I had it. Well, hey, I'm glad that, that worked out. <laughs> That's pretty serious. No, really, it's like, yeah. No, they say I had the Widowmaker, and nobody ever, ever survives that. I just happened to collapse at the front door. Huh? You mean you were just walking by? <laughs> no, I wanted to go get a checkup because the day before I'd been out hiking, and I had, I you know, had some symptoms that were kind of alarming. But I said, well, I'll go in the next day. And so I went in the next day and I collapsed at the front door. So mm. I guess uh, the uh, my guardians were taking care of me. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, uh, property in Marin, that's pretty good. Um, well, I'm a renter. I, I, I've been 22 years at the same property for very like a 75% discounted rent. Because I maintain the property for the elderly property owner. Wow, so it's uh, that's fact, great. It's great. It's like my rent is what uh, just about what the property tax would pay for. Oh, that's terrific! That's terrific. Um, yeah, so the the guardians are watching over me again. Yeah, yeah. Well, so um, uh, we kn- we know each other because of the. Uh, San Francisco Zen Center and our various connections. Uh, and, uh, I'd like to hear about that, but um, anything. Uh, tell me, where were you born? Uh, 
Massachusetts near Boston. Uh-huh. And, uh, and so, um, yeah, my older brother who you knew, Paul, probably, I believe you knew Paul, right? Yeah, sure. He, so he, I think it was like, I think 1965, he started training at the San Francisco Zen Center. And then, uh, I was in college near Boston and in December 66 or 67, I made a road trip and I wrote to him saying my twin brother and I were going to come out and see him and start to learn about Zen. So ah. He never he never got the letter, and when we arrived at the Zen Center, uh, they told us, "Sorry, nobody's here because everybody's down on a winter session in Tassajara." So we got some basic instruction from a elderly Japanese lady who I, I maybe it was even Suzuki Roshi's wife could be maybe I don't know who but, else it would be, but uh, her English was limited and. Uh, we didn't know what to do. And so, I mean, it was kind of an awkward, but we ended up going across the Bay to Berkeley and spent, uh, I think, 10 days in a uh, in a meditation training with, I don't know how to say his name, Eknath Eswaran, the uh, famous Advaita meditation teacher. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. So, That's neat. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, but then... Uh, I spent six months in a Trappist monastery in France, and then I spent six months at an ashram in India, and I spent four months at a, a Zen Buddhist monastery temple in Beppu, Japan. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, uh, you, all right, now you're, you're, you're just sort of outlining some stuff that went happened over a period of years, right? Yes, right. Well, let's let's go back to you're in San Francisco, and, and we'll get there. We'll get to Beppu. I know where you were in Beppu. Uh, and um, uh, so you were in the Bay Area. Did you see Paul? No, no, because everybody – I was in college. I had to get back to school, but uh, everybody was – there was no, this is 1966, I think. Yeah. There's no way to contact anybody down in Tassajara. No, no. Never got the letter. Or, no, it wasn't. So we, it wasn't 66. Uh, we, we never, it was, maybe 67. It had to be 67 because we didn't move into Tassajara until January of 67. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was, I think, probably, probably December 6. Oh, maybe, maybe it could have been, but anyway, I'm a little fuzzy on the dates, but, uh, it was, uh, it was just wonderful to come to San Francisco. It was just past the summer of love and people were very, very friendly, Yeah, extremely friendly and open. And, uh, so I think we were here for like 10 or 11 days and then we took a jet back to Boston and, uh, it was a great introduction to. It was a great introduction in learning to love what is, uh-huh. causing myself to suffer because Paul didn't get my letter and we didn't get to meet him. Ah, well, uh, so you're back in Boston and in school, right? Yep. What school? Holy Cross College. Yeah. Where? In Boston. 
in Worcester, not far from Boston, maybe 40 miles up the road from Boston. Yeah. All right. So, uh, so what happened next? Well, then, uh, I went to Europe on a junior abroad and mm. didn't like being, it was, it was like in Grenoble, University of Grenoble, and I was in the Faculty de Lettres. And so, uh, I was just, you know, such a big, wide world, especially, you know, I was 19 or 20 years old and it was, and all of a sudden, uh, I, I had to, my mother was furious. And I got cut off, and so I was sweeping floors in a department store from 6 p.m. to midnight just to eat. And uh, I came home one night, and there was a letter offering me a job on the ski patrol in the famous uh, ski resort, La Duez. Mm. So uh, I passed the interview both because they needed English-speaking, they needed bilingual English-speaking, French-speaking uh, people on the slopes because they had a lot of uh, Europeans who only spoke English. So mm-hmm. uh, four months, uh, I skied my heart out, and then uh, I went from there to a Trappist monastery. Oh wow! You went to a Trappist monastery where? In France. Wow! And how long were you there? Six months. Six months there. Yeah, it was quite a. How was that? And that was up in, uh, uh, well, it was really a stretch because uh, I was raised in a a loud Italian family, and then to be silent for six months was quite a U-turn. Wow, that is cool. Good for you. What led you, (laughs) where on earth did you get that idea? That's really unusual. Well, uh I can't tell you. All I know is I couldn't put my finger on it, but uh, I, you know, I bet I, I was a child of the '60s and drug, sex, and rock and rolls, and uh, it didn't. I mean, I had every advantage a guy could ask for, and nothing quite hit home. And there, I spent four months on top of the world, literally skiing near Mont Blanc. And the best snow in the world, the most beautiful women in the world, the best wine in the world, and <laughs> it just didn't do it for me. And yeah. So uh, I, a, a friend of a friend, said, "Hey, there's a confessor uh, at this monastery, and his name is Pierre Guillaume, Father William. And it took usually it took seven years to get an appointment to see him for a, to do a retreat for a week." And I wrote a letter to him in French, and he said, I don't know who you are, but I want to see you. And so immediately they said, got here, come here right away. And every morning I got to have a, a, a meeting with him. Mm. And uh, it's not like in, in the Catholic tradition, in the mystic Catholic tradition, it's not like a confessor isn't someone you tell your sins to. He's sort of a spiritual guide, uh, spiritual counselor. Uh-huh. So, but he his title was confessor, confessor. Mm. So, uh, anyway, after months of meeting him, he said, "You know, Rico, there's no doubt in my mind that you have a, a religious vocation, but it's not like one I've ever seen before." 
and I can I can close my eyes and be there again. And again, I'm probably 21, maybe. And he just said, uh, everybody that I counsel to follow a, a vocation, it's a very well marked highway with stops here and there, and we know where it's going. But with you, I have absolutely no doubt that you have an authentic calling, but it's not a path that's ever been made before. So just go for it and be honest with yourself and know that you are blessed. Mm. So uh, then, uh, so I, I would, I would, it's not like I was bipolar, but uh, I would do six months in a monastery and then I'd go skiing for six months. And then I do, then I went to Mexico for six months to go to the University of the Americas. Yeah, I went there. Really? Yeah. In Caritas uh, uh, Toluca Trente Siete. Uh huh. the address? That's after it moved. It was, it, 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 oh, maybe you went to the new campus in Pueblo. No. Oh, no. I was there in 65. Uh, so it was just right outside of Mexico City. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's the same school. The University of the Americas, yeah, that was the one. Yeah. Oh, I just... It's a little... oh, I was there in uh, 1969-70, I think. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I was, but again, I, I was just there a little... Uh, I was there for two quarters, and mainly uh, I smoked pot uh, and screw, well, but, screwed but, around. Exactly, because, I mean... Again, so uh, I would go into class, and it was just, it was a big continent just begging me to be adventured through. So I had an old truck, and it got me, I went to, I, I know more parts of Mexico than any Mexican does. I went everywhere. I never went to class. Huh. And uh, I had, but I had a student visa. And it was great. And uh, I got guns shot at me. This is not a joke. I did. I had the federal shooting their rifles at me one night. And I lived to tell a tale. Why? Why? Yeah. All right. They were shooting at you. Why were they shooting at you? Well, these were the, this is the days of uh, Carlos Castaneda. And some guy I knew in the lunchroom said he knew uh, a bruja who was associated with Carlos Castaneda and some valley down the other side of uh, Oaxaca, the village of Oaxaca. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the name of that valley is anymore. It's, it's got to be, what, 55 years ago or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we uh, we got, I, I was with two guys to help with gas money and take turns driving. And we got to this road where we had to leave the the village of Oaxaca to get down to this valley and there was a roadblock by the federales because Nixon had made a deal with the president of Mexico to close the area off no more peyote and religious ceremonies for American kids so the federales kept this roadblock up to keep uh, kids out if you're a Mexican farmer or something you go ahead it's wide open to you but so uh, we waited till the federales were kind of dozing, and I had a massive 
heavy-duty grill built on the front of this truck, and I just floored it and mashed through the roadblock, and all of a sudden we had seven or ten rifle shots happening, ding, ding, and hitting the mirrors and bouncing off the metal, and ooh, that was pretty exciting, I'll tell you. Wow. All right. <laughs> and um, so uh, did you take peyote? Well, it was, yeah, but it wasn't just straight peyote. It, uh, I can't remember, but it was like peyote, and, and it was like a gruel that this old egg made. And mm-hmm. uh, she she wouldn't take any money, but she said, when you're leaving, if you make a donation to an orphanage up in Oaxaca, it was really, I mean, it was a real deal. It wasn't like a money mill or something, right? Yeah. And uh, all of the, I think there were three of us. And at dawn, so we got there. We and we got there at dawn, and we it was like a ceremony. Yeah. And I can remember vomiting and hurling for the longest time, and then <laughs> finally having a having a would you call it a transcendent experience? I don't know, but it was a big sense of unity. Mm-hmm. But it cured me of wanting to go. The drugs to find the answer of what I was hankering for. Now, when you say drugs, what drugs are you talking about? Well, psychedelics, especially. Yeah. All right. I mean, I experimented with the basics like every kid did in the 60s, but it wasn't, I just knew in my heart of hearts it wasn't for me. Although, uh, in, I think this, I was a freshman in college and my brother Paul, was uh, invited me to come see Ram Dass, who was then Richard Alpert, up in Amherst Valley. And I think that's what changed my life. I spent five or six hours with Dr. Richard Alpert with maybe six or seven grad students up in the Amherst Valley. And he was still wearing tweeds and a necktie and horn-rimmed glasses. The way he moved and the way he spoke and what he had to say cracked the foundation of everything I believed to be true. Mm. Literally, truly, no exaggeration. Mm. But and so he was, he was still, you know, he was still one of the high priests of LSD, and of course I took some, a couple times, but I, I realized somehow I realized I don't think so. I don't think this is the way. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, so, um, all right. So uh, we're back in Mexico. Uh, what happened then? Well, uh, I think that was on a Sunday morning when we had the sacrament. And then the old lady said, listen, all the farmers are going to be coming in and out of that roadblock on Sunday afternoon because they've all come to the markets. There's going to be a huge chaos of confusion. And I want you to just go down to the riverbed and cover your truck with mud so the soldiers won't recognize it. And we we came back up the road and there was like a very busy chaos because they had opened it up for all the 
peasants to come in and out of the, the village, and we got out of it alive. Uh-huh. All right. Went back to Mexico City and waited for the next adventure. Hmm. Well, keep going. Well, the next adventure found me in jail in Belize. Oh, yeah? Yeah. How did that happen? Well, one of the guys I was friendly with at the school uh, said his dad was buying like a 60-foot sailing yacht in the capital city of Belize. No, then it was, in those days, I think it was called the British Honduras. Oh, yeah. And so. uh, Yeah, that's right. The British Honduras. And so. I got a, I got him and another. So we're three crew. Uh, helped the guy sail a boat on sea trials, and uh, we got to the border of Mexico, British Honduras, and they wanted five hundred dollars cash deposit for our truck, which of course you'd never see again. So we said, I don't think so, and uh, so we parked the truck with the Mexican authorities just 50 feet away and took a, a bus up to Chetamal, the last town on the uh, Caribbean shore of Mexico, and found a questionable pirate kind of guy to sail us down to the capital in a leaky old sailboat. And, you know, as a old guy right now and I think that guy says what were we thinking taking a boat there was nothing there was no radio there was no electronics and this guy looked pretty shady and so here's three American guys and we we set off I think it was like 75-80 miles down the coast to get to the capital and so we sailed two or three days and we Two or three we days to go 75 or 80 miles? Yeah, well, yeah, because a lot of time the wind was in your face, so there was no wind at all. And the guy had a very sketchy uh, outboard motor to kick him along. It's only like a 25, 26 little sail, sailboat. And so uh, we ended up in going onto a little island in the key, what they call the Keys. And uh, so... The guy says, "Come on, we're going to have a great breakfast, and you can probably take a, you know, take a there was a well on this little piece of land, and you can bathe and clean yourself, and sounded like heaven. So we're this old lady is making us uh, huevos con churros and coffee from heaven, and I had a all of a sudden I had a gun put to my head, mm. and the uh, the military police there said." that the guy that brought us there was a known smuggler and that he was smuggling us illegally into the country. I said, no, pal, you got it wrong. We're stupid American kids coming down to sail a boat. But this guy said, no, no, we have you, we've caught you red-handed. You don't have an immigration visa to enter our country. And I said, what country are we in? We didn't know what, we changed countries. So the guy marches to jail. No joke. So it's pretty frightening, actually. We got we we got out. So wait a minute, you got out. How did you get out? So, uh, I, do you know when uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated? What year that was? Uh, because 
I think that was uh, uh, 68, but I'll tell you in a second. Uh, Doesn't matter. Anyway, the deal is, and there are no facilities, and we have to, you know, do our used bucket drop evolution, so to speak. And uh, finally, I say, man, you know, we're going to die if you don't. Let us get out here and uh, uh, use the latrine outside. Wash us. I mean, there's no way we can't get off the island. So, so he finally allowed us to uh, have a little dignity with our toilet function. And I saw uh, he was studying this magazine, and he was open to the story of the Robert Kennedy assassination. And there was a picture of the family at the Cape Cod, uh, what's it called? Hyannisport compound. Yeah. And so all of a sudden I had an idea. One of the guys with us uh, had was traveling. His, he was, his father was a diplomat in the Foreign Service. And he looked a little bit like uh, Irish Catholic. Mm-hmm. And so you know what I'm going to say. I'm going to No, I don't. I'm going to say, listen <laughs> well, so I just said to my buddy, you're going to be one of the Kennedys, and this is you in the picture, kneeling next to your cousin Caroline Kennedy, and we're going to sell this to the guy, otherwise we're going to rot in jail. And he said, what? Nobody would believe that story. I said, it's the only chance we have. So my, I spoke some Spanish, and the guy spoke some English, and uh, I convinced him that his career was shot if it turns out he didn't let the Kennedys go. Ah. And I sold it. He bought it. An hour later, we were free. Bobby Kennedy was assassinated on June 6th, 1968. Yeah. So this is like a year later or something. Uh uh-huh. Maybe 69. But the guys, you know, he had an old magazine that he was reading to study English, I guess, and Hmm. Hmm. Well, so uh, what happened next? Well, we got out and we, <laughs> the guy let us go. He let us go. He was convinced that uh, we were telling the truth and he had a Kennedy. Yeah, 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 yeah. But what happened it. after <laughs> that? Oh, we got back to Mexico and then, uh, so uh, then. I meet a guy in the lunchroom at University of the Americas, and he was uh, recently uh, uh, administrator for the uh, Outward Bound Schools, mm-hmm. it's the uh, outdoor survival programs. Mm-hmm. And he said, do you know how to sail? I said, well, I just came off a sailboat trip. I mean, just like the next day after surviving this, I run into this guy, and he said, you're the perfect guy. So uh, he got me a job up at the Hurricane Island School in Maine. Hmm. And uh, one thing led to another, and there you go. And Bob's your uncle, and I got married and had kids. And oh, wow. Yep. Keep going. <laughs> uh, well, let's see what to say. Well. You know, uh, so I, uh, I, I had a, I, I'm a, I went to chiropractic school for four, four years in Iowa. 
Oh. And had a beautiful, uh, had a 250-year-old sea captain's home in Wiscasset, Maine, view of the ocean, beautiful sailboat, lovely kids, lovely wife. And I was very unhappy. Just, again, I felt like, where's the payoff? I had worked so hard. I'd worked six years to get to this place. And uh, my brother said, you have to come down to Boston and do the S training with Werner Erhardt. Mm. And that cracked something open. Your twin brother. Your twin uh, brother said that. Because he had just done it. So everybody had to do S after that. Uh, But it was... It was very helpful. Then, uh, uh, I think it was like two weekends, two Friday, Saturday, and Sundays, and uh, I ended up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I was walking down. I can remember it was Huron Avenue, a few blocks away from Harvard Square, and I'm walking down the street, and I see this. I'm, I'm still kind of processing all the all the cracks in the foundation of my belief system. And I come across this window and there's just a piece of velvet fabric in the whole storefront of the window. And it was a picture of a guy's eyes. I didn't think much of it. I took 10 steps and I went back and I said, I thought it was Gurdjieff. I thought it was a Gurdjieff Center. G.I. Gurdjieff, the mystics. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't. It was Rajneesh, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Ah. So I met a couple people in there, and for three days they held me while I cried and cried and cried. I just... I was just so disappointed that I had done everything that society told me was going to make me happy, Marriage, children, clinical practice, cars, boats, homes. And I was deeply unhappy. So I sold the business. And my wife said, when are you coming back? You're going to go to India? I said, yeah, I don't, when are you coming back? I don't know. So she said, can you divorce me? I said, I don't want to divorce you. I love you. She said, I know, but. If you don't come back and who knows where, how am I going to start dating someone if I'm a married woman? So I gave her everything. Everything we owned, I gave to her. How and old were married. your children? Mm, uh, I mean, they weren't diapers, but they were they were toddlers. Mm-hmm. Maybe three, three and six or something. Mm-hmm. Then uh, I spent six months in India and came back. And, wait a minute. And, uh, wait a minute. Details, please. Uh, <laughs> Did you ever work for the FBI? Because uh, this sounds a little bit like that. Yeah. Well, you went to India. Uh, why did you go to India? Well, as I just said, uh, I had everything a man could ever dream of, and I was 30. I think I was in my Saturn return. Yeah, yeah. In astrological terms, and I was like 31 years old. 
and I had everything that should make me happy, and I was deeply disappointed that it wasn't giving me any kind of satisfaction. Yeah, but why did you decide on India? Well, because uh, I went into that uh, storefront in Cambridge. Right, right. So you went to India. Did you go to Pune to have Rajneesh's place? Yeah. Okay. Six months. Oh, Six so months so you were not only in India, you went to India to be in Rajneesh's place. Ah. Exactly. So how yeah. was that? <laughs> wow. Well, that would take, uh, in fact, uh, I just had a call. I think it was, was it Friday? So I wrote a book about it. Uh, it's called Please Don't Tell My Guru. Uh-huh. All right. Comedy about being, about being with Rajneesh. But uh, uh, it was in the early 70s, and we were doing, uh, I think I did like eight or nine, ten-day residential groups. And we were doing gestalt therapy and rebirthing and just any kind of therapy. In, in Pune? And they were all, yeah, and they were all... Uh, English and German uh, licensed therapists in their countries. Uh-huh. So it wasn't like a fly-by-night thing. I mean, these guys really knew where you're, where you were holding your your self-inflated ideas of yourself. Uh-huh. So I mean, I would be like really cracked open, and uh, then they'd say, "Okay, now you get two days rest, and you have to do another group." You don't have to do anything, but so it was. Uh, it was kind of like boot camp to crush mm. all of your illusions and see what is left. Mm. Mm. Then uh, I ended up eight years in Berkeley with the uh, Diamond Heart School. Diamond Heart School. What's that? <laughs> A.H. Uh, Almas was, uh, I'm surprised you don't know that, uh, what do they call it, depth, the depth psychology of stupidism. Really remarkable training. Diamond, diamond heart approach it's called now. Yeah, I've you heard of it. So it was, uh, it was another way of looking at uh, all the way you cherish your opinions and beliefs about yourself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Katrinka so what, uh, tried to help a group, uh, that Diamond Heart group, uh, that wanted to have a, um, you know, a thing here in Bali. Uh, and they had a, a Oh, yeah, lot. I think, yeah, because they have, yep, they have them all over the place now. Yeah, yeah. But the birthplace is birthplace. And I went there, you know, for eight years, I was there three times a month and doing private uh, therapy three times a month. And it was just remarkable. Mm. Just, and it's like, but I did all these things. I did meditation. I did the Trappist Monastery. I did all these trainings. And it still wasn't, it was like a, a, a baking bread. But I didn't have the right yeast. Mm -hmm. If you can follow that idea. Mm -hmm. So uh, then uh, 
but yeah, but the diamond heart, the diamond heart, you were you were uh, you were participating in that for eight years. Uh, was was that uh, f- more fulfilling? Well, yes, but not enough to. Uh, so anyway, the lady who took me in against, I mean, it was like, it was in those days uh, to get in to get to become a student of this woman, Alia Johnson. She was one of the co-founders of the program. Mm-hmm. And so uh, she died. Mm. So uh, she, she died of a, of a, I think, liver cancer. All of a sudden they found it and bam, she was gone. And so then I started looking for another teacher within the school. And I just, nobody could fill her shoes, so to speak. Oh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and I just said, well, I guess I've got, I've gone as far as I can with the school. Mm. How, how, were you, how were you supporting yourself uh, during this eight years? I'm a chiropractor. I had a, I had a nice business here in Marin. Oh, cool. And you, were, you had a chiropractic business in Marin while you were doing that in Berkeley? Yes. Wow. Pretty cool. All right. So? So then... Uh, some years ago, and I'm kind of bouncing along, and uh, I'm still, it's like, I didn't have the recipe down yet. And again, I like to go back to that metaphor of, of trying to bake, and I don't have the right yeast. Mm-hmm. I don't have the ingredients, the proportions to get the cake, with the bread. And so this 20 years, and a, a German woman I knew from Marin, and she said, Rico, you have to go to the open secret door and so and I'm thinking, I don't know, you know, I didn't spare opportunity. And I just said, okay. And I went to the bookstore, and within five minutes of hearing this Zen teacher speak, I said, I don't know who this person is, but I want to find out. All right. Uh, Rico, I, 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 I want you to go back. I want you to go back and repeat. Uh, we had... Um, we had a uh, problem with uh, uh, connection. Uh, go back to the point where you said uh, you didn't have the yeast quite right. Oh. Huh. All right. Are you? In, a friend of mine called me and urged me, a woman that I had known and told me that at the open store, she told me a few times, and I wasn't that impressed with the caliber of the speakers at this bookstore. Mm-hmm. And, and so she said, do not let your conditioned mind cheat you out of this precious opportunity. Mm. So I went. Mm. And it was the best decision I ever made in my entire life. And now, is she is she the Zen person you were talking about? I've been with her almost Wait, what, what, what's her name? Sherry Huber. Shelly Huber. Really? Sherry, C-H-E-R-I, Sherry Huber. Oh, she has she- like 26 books, uh-huh. 26 books. And the one that really hooked me was a book called There Is Nothing Wrong With You. Mm. Mm. Yeah, Sherry Huber. Wow. What did she get you to do? What did she suggest you do? 
well, she didn't suggest anything, but uh, it was a 10-day residential retreat up in Murphy's, up in the Sierras. Oh, yeah. And about three or four weeks later, uh, I was there doing a 10-day uh, meditation retreat focused on this workshop, There Is Nothing Wrong With You. Oh, yeah. And it was it was the beginning of a profoundly, profoundly deconstructive investigation into all what I held and cherished to be true. Mm. And in fact, this morning, I just did a 90 minutes with her, usually about maybe, I don't know, 15 or 20 Sundays per year. We do these online uh, computer led workshops. Now you said you did it with her. Is with is she's alive? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. She's eighty years old, and I mean, this lady still is running a skill saw and building and plumbing and doing electrical work. Eighty years old. Nobody can keep up with her. Oh, that is great. Where does she live? It's, uh, well, they they sold the place up in Murphy's because of the drought and the fire risk. Yeah, and all these. Mountain lions and bears were coming down looking for water. And so it was, she, her retreatants were terrified. So she said, huh, I don't want to risk lives with hungry bears and mountain lions. So they moved and they have a place in Squim up near Port Townsend, Washington. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a good area. Well, that's really neat. That's wonderful. Uh, now, uh, but, at what point did you get to Japan? Oh, that was in the 80s. That was like in 1981 or 82. Well, let's hear about Japan. Anyway, I, I lived for six months in Pune, India, in a very fashionable apartment. And I had a, a booming chiropractic business there. Oh, one of my, really? One of my, it was, it was a flat of all Japanese people. Oh. And, uh, my, one, I became very close with a friend there and, uh, we ended up going to Japan together and he knew, uh, he, well, you probably know him. Uh, what was his name? Uh, uh, Yamada, uh, Yuho, Ruho Yamada. Who yeah. Was sent from, he came to uh, San Francisco to do uh, healing work on on Roshi Suzuki. Well, Roshi. yeah, uh, I knew him very well. Uh, so, uh, um, you're, you're saying actually he came to he came to the Zen Center just to be a priest with us, and it turned out that he he told. Uh, Suzuki was uh, very sick, you know, he was dying, and uh, he told Oksan that he knew how to do shiatsu, so he ended up shiatsuing a lot. Uh, but so you met these Rajneesh people in Beppu. I stayed in a Rajneesh house in Tokyo, uh, and, uh, yeah, there were a lot of Japanese into Rajneesh, and, and a lot of them in California at one point. Uh, so you went to... So you, 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 but but Rio wasn't in in India, right? You just went. No, no. You, you no. went to Beppu. He, so he was. Uh, his father uh, was still alive. The uh, master of the temple. Yeah. It was like a twelve hundred year old temple, 
like a training temple. And so that he asked his son to come back and uh, take care of business. So uh, he would be a priest by day and an old hippie by night. Right. So it was the perfect world because the days uh, we could, you know, I, 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 I practice and, uh, it was great. Though. It, was a, it was a great, but it was cold, boy. That's all I remember about it. It was like, geez, it was like December, January, February, and March. Just, of course, there's no heat, no heat at all. It was just bone cold. So, how high? How, what was the altitude of it? Because that's down in Kyushu. Well, it, was, it was, yeah, yeah, it's Kyushu. It's sea level It's right there. It's sea level, but oh, is that it was right? Just cold. Yeah. Oh, really? It's just cold, and there's no heat anywhere, and. Uh, it's northern Kyushu, but uh, north northwest Kyushu. Uh, wow, far out. Well, so what do you remember about Ryuho? Uh Well, you know, he. I guess his his father was legally blind, but he could still paint these masterpiece ink scrolls. I don't know how he did it. I would watch him in the afternoons do that. I can't remember his name, but he was ninety years old. And uh, Duho was uh, slowly going blind also. So uh, he, he, he was conflicted because uh, he missed the party lifestyle after uh, Suzuki died. He got like, he went to be, you know, he was like a classic wild man hippie after breaking free of his Japanese restraint repressive conditioning oh definitely so he was he came, yes so he right so he came back to uh and to take over the family business so to speak to to run the temple and to take care of all the congregation but uh he he didn't like doing that yeah so he likes his he liked his sake every night yeah yeah um so do you remember he, his wife Yes, very surely. Surely, right? Yeah. Yep, yep, surely. So she was like a San Francisco girl, and she was like delir- delirious and joy to have an American, intelligent American guy to talk to, which is me. Yeah. Because I wasn't, I wasn't interested in alcohol or drugs. You know, that wasn't my way. So she and I got on famously, and uh, we had to sort of put up with Ruho's drunken stupors every night. Yeah. Anyway, David, uh, I have to jump. Uh, I didn't know you were going to call, but we can continue this another time if you'd like. Well, let's continue it tomorrow. Anytime. So, uh, I'm I like, late afternoons are fine. Uh, yeah, it would be... Uh, you know, tomorrow approximately the same time. All right. Maybe. maybe. All right. Anyway, it was kind of fun. I hope you could understand me and you can make something out of this and do some editing or something. And No, I won't edit great. it much. It's just pretty good straight. Uh, and All right. I'm going to jump. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, David. We'll talk right. soon. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. So it didn't work out for me to call him the next day. But um, after a little time, I did call back, and we reconnected.
Rico. Hey, Rico. How you doing? I'm okay. It's kind of hot here, and I kicked my asthma up, but I guess I'm going to make it. Ah. Hmm. Where in Marin are you again? San Rafael. Uh-huh. Ah. Yeah, nice place. I'm, uh, I, I've traveled to something like 55 countries, and uh, I finally found my resting place. <laughs> I just, I, no, I really mean it. I never thought, I feel so at ease and settled here where I I was always jumping around and antsy and going to the next continent to the bench. I, I yeah. finally get it. I want to set some roots. Yeah, that's the last place that Katrinka and I lived was San Rafael before coming here. Yeah, uh, I had you. You, you, you know, uh, Mike Murphy is the he's the owner of Esalen Institute, and I had lunch. I know, yeah, I know him. I know Michael. You know him. All right, I had lunch with him at the Panama Hotel, uh, where yeah. Uh, uh, this was years ago. Katrinka worked at the Panama, but that's the last job she had. Before we came here, uh, anyway, I used to go there for uh, for lunch because they had some or, or dinner. They had some beautiful a cappella music and singing and guitarists. And- oh yeah, she she did all the music when she was oh. here. So I was having lunch with Michael, and I uh, said, "How do you like San Rafael?" He said, "I think it's the best place in the world to be." <laughs> I had lunch with him, though, when he was still living in Mill Valley. I went to his home. Ah. So. Ah. But that was probably, I don't know, a good 30 years ago. Wow. Was there any? uh, He he wrote a, he gave me a book blurb for one of my books called Golf Between the Ears. Oh. So he was gracious. He never did that, but he did it as a favor to a friend of mine who kind of twisted his arm. Oh. Wow. Yeah, he's hard to get to. Um, hmm. Yeah, that's pretty neat. So, look, uh, we had a nice talk um, a few weeks ago. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to talk some more because we didn't hit on, uh, uh, you know, uh, your what you've written, you know. So um, why don't you tell me about that? Well, uh, I think I can't remember the dates. I'm, I'm, the, the numbers are all fuzzy. You know what I'm saying? But uh, I, mm. I published uh, two books. The first one is called Golf Between the Ears, and it was a uh, story on uh, this golf team in Fairfield, Iowa, where these kids were ranked beginners and they won their state title by using. Uh, Maharishi TM meditation. Oh, wow. It was terrific, uh, these kids. So I spent 10 days with the kids in Iowa and the coach, and I thought I was going over there to, to, uh, you know, be the elder in the community. I became the student. They taught me so much. It was terrific. Mm. 
then uh, I uh, that was well received. Then I wrote a book called Please Don't Tell My Guru about mm-hmm. my adventures with the um, madman mystic Rajneesh Osho. Mm-hmm. And, and so now I have another book that's in... I don't know if Wisdom Publications are going to publish it. They're talking about it. Uh, my next book is called Hiding Out with the Enemy, A Zen Carpenter's Tale. Hmm. And then I have a, another sort of memoir, fiction, about called uh, Brave Man Slowly Wise, about how long it took for this man to uh, wake up and not get killed in the process by doing the crazy, zany adventure sports. Oh. And then uh, you can find it all on my website, Rico Provisoli at Yeah. What's it called? M-E, Rico Provisoli dot M-E. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. I'll be sure to mention that too. Right. Right. Of course. Hmm. And in your last message, you said you wanted to talk about my brother, which is how I kind of got into Zen. My brother, Paul, I can't remember the dates. He was at San Francisco Zen Center, but you probably, he, I think he started with Reb Anderson. He and Reb were kind of like Dharma babies. Uh-huh. And uh, so, yep. Uh, and he died tragically. Yeah. And I think, what year was that? 1971, maybe? Yeah. Was 1971. Yeah. And I, yeah. was on a, uh, I was on a sailboat in Tangier, Morocco <laughs> when I got word. And it was, I can remember it like it happened this morning. It was so vivid when I got the telegram. And I was both deeply saddened and ecstatically happy that he went so effortlessly. So I remember that day. And of mm. course, it was really hard on his widow and child, Jerry. Yeah. And Amanda. So. Well, you know, the, the, what I heard is uh, he uh, was changing a flat tire. Not quite. No, it's not quite. But it's partial credit, partially true. Uh, so my understanding is he had he had worked for some years to get a, a monk sent from the, one of the Soto uh, schools to Western Massachusetts, where he facilitated a new Zen center there, which I think is still operating, maybe Green Mountain Zen Center or something like that. So they had. It was like the welcoming day festival for the new uh, Zen master of the process. And uh, do you he, know who that was? I no, I don't. All right. Uh, but anyway, uh, they were also getting their. They had a three-week-old baby, Ananda Maya, and they were going to get some kind of blessing and welcoming. And they're on the way there or home, and uh, he uh, he pulled over. He was apparently 30 feet off the paved surface of the road, and he something was kind of sticking on his carburetor, so he went to open up the back of the Volkswagen Bug, and uh, apparently he was getting back into the car, 
opened the door and a 17-year-old girl was dead drunk and hit him. And he died pretty quickly after that. Hmm. So uh, he didn't suffer. And Hope, his, his wife, Jerry, suffered. But uh, my my response always was, well, he brought a lot of love and light into the world. And then it was time for him to go to the next adventure. Mm. And I still miss him. I, I still miss him. Yeah. But he was a profound influence on my life. In fact, this morning uh, I was thinking about how my life would have changed if he were still with us. Because I think it was like in 1965, he he came to our family home outside of Boston and taught me, gave me my first Zazen sitting lesson. Hmm. So he got me interested in it. And hmm. do, do you, well, before I, I have another question for you, but do you have anything else to say about Paul? Uh, like, did he come to Zen Center like in 65? Yes, at least that. I think he was one of the early students there. Uh-huh. He, uh huh. What's curious about Paul is uh, we both went to Holy Cross College. Kind of uh, in those days, it was a very small Jesuit men's school. Now it's co-ed, but mm-hmm. very distinguished. And uh, then he got into John Hopkins, and he was there one semester. He says, "I don't want to do this," and he dropped. He really broke my father's heart. And uh, he went out to San Francisco and just started Zen. And so mm-hmm. he, he, yeah, he was really a motivated guy. Um, uh, but you, you got uh, involved with uh, Rajneesh in uh, India, right? In Pune. Yep, yep, yep. You mentioned that last time. I can't remember what you said. Uh, can you elaborate on that, Sam? Jeez, boy. In fact, uh, I have a twin brother. He and he and I are the Robert. We we were born Robert and Richard, and so he's Bobby and I'm Rico. But uh, we were just talking about our our uh, our youth and our memories, and uh, I, we were talking about courage. And I was telling him one of the most courageous acts I ever did was get on that airplane to go to India. Just took tremendous courage and guts to do it. It wasn't a picnic at all. I was like desperate. I was just drowning in despair. And uh, so it was, um, it, it was really, uh, yeah, it was profoundly, profoundly transforming. People think, oh, well, uh, a lot of sex and drugs and, oh, boy, let's go to India. No, it was not that. It was like hammer on the rock, the rock being the ego. Bam, bam, bam. I mean, you if you wanted to just make a joke of it and have a carnival time, you could. But uh, it, it cost me so dearly. It cost me my marriage and the custody of my two young children. So I I made the most of the time. But I think I did 12 or 13 10-day intensive residential groups. So many of the group leaders were from Esalon or 
British therapy centers, or and it was very, very high-powered, high no holds barred, take no prisoners, and uh, go for broke. It was very, very powerful, just usually powerful. Mm. And then uh, it was the guy, I mean, he, he it's almost as if he was intentionally creating a way to continuously break our fragile egos again and again and again. And one way he did it was he made us dress in bright orange and wearing a, a mala wooden rose beads with his picture on it, all as a device to make us look like idiots. And I was, <laughs> well, it's really true. And even today, uh, I, I can't remember. I, I, I use, what are they called? Barber clippers, electric clippers. And mm -hmm. I cut my own hair. And uh, I've been doing it for years and years and years. And I keep it pretty short. And I hack away at my bushy beard. But dressing like that for seven or eight years or nine years, you really learned firsthand to have a direct experience about being free from people's opinions of you. Mm. And like, I, I don't care what my hair looks like. So it was a huge, it was a huge device. And, uh, yeah. So. Mm. Very, very grateful for that. Mm. And so then he built a, a commune in Oregon near Antelope. And his whole device was, okay, I'm going to promise you a paradise and you can, that you think you're going to stay here forever. And we really made, uh, a paradise out of the desert. It was remarkable. All these environmental groups came to say, my God, we can't believe what you guys did. And then he turned us on our heads when he made himself such a hateful figure that he got, uh, what are they called? Deported. And the place closed down, and all of our dreams were crushed. And it was all a device. He was a he was a mystic magician mm. who kept pulling the rug out from under us again and again and again. So it's not like we, he was ever going to let us get cozy being disciples. Mm. Mm. And his and there's probably no group that's been more highly misunderstood. But that was his device. That was his intention. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've known a lot of uh, sunyats. And uh, uh, I remember when I was in, uh, when I first went to Japan, uh, I hung out with people who liked uh, Rajneesh. And uh, I stayed one one night at, the Raj, at a Rajneesh house in Tokyo. And they they had me uh, 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 watch a, a video of him, and uh, did I don't know if you if you knew anybody at the Zen Center or anything, but uh, there was a guy named Claude Dallenberg, and for years I'd go read to him once a week in a, a convalescent home, and uh, one thing we went through was some. Uh, Rajneesh. Uh, yep. I, I read a, a book of Rajneesh's stuff. I enjoyed that. Um, yep, yep. Uh, did, 
did you did you ever have any experience at the San Francisco Zen Center? But then, I, but and then, but then, uh, I I did quite a few uh, sessions at uh, Green Gulch. I was more into the Green Gulch thing than San Francisco. Oh, well, you, you hadn't mentioned that. I had no idea. So, uh, when was that? Eighties. I would say the eighties. What eighty? After, uh, I, well, you're asking too much of this old man. Uh, oh, okay. So in the eighties. <laughs> well, was Richard yeah. Baker there? No, I met him. But, so uh, it was mostly uh, I can't remember Linda 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 Cotts is that her name? Yeah, Linda Ruth Cotts. Right, and she was there, and then of course Reb. And, but I was just marked on my calendar on August thirteenth. There's a uh, Reb is giving a Dharma talk, and I he he just turned eighty, or he's about to turn eighty soon. And really, uh, Reb's going to turn eighty. Yeah, yeah, and so I have a, a, a book of Japanese Zen poetry for him. So I thought I'd give it to him. Hmm. But he, I also did for years and years, he had another side shoot called No Abode, which was up in the, the Upper Cam Valley. Right. Like, like once a month we do a, a one-day sitting and they do Dharma talks. Hmm. So he's, hmm. he's a great influence. Plus, uh, I knew him socially quite a bit also. So we had kind of a fuzzy boundary between strict Zen student Roshi and Dharma Pal. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, but yeah. yeah. Um, is, w- when did you first uh, go to the Zen Center? December 67. Ah, and where did you go? I think it was Bush Street. Mm-hmm. But uh, we went to visit. We we went to go. Uh, my twin and I were on college break, and we drove across the country to spend 10 days hanging out with Paul and, you know, tooling around San Francisco. And when we got there, it turns out they were all down at Tassajara. Uh-huh. So we didn't see him. And, you know, nobody thought about phone calls in those days. Phone calls were like calling the moon or something. Nobody calls cross country. Well, it wasn't easy to call Town Sahara. Yeah. No, no, I'm talking even calling Zen Center. Oh, we, yeah. We never even thought of it. Nobody was, nobody called cross country. Uh-huh. heard of. Uh huh. Oh, I remember you did mention that. Right. Right. When was the next time? David, I got to tell you, it's all a blur, you know? Uh huh. I, 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 uh, I, let's see, I, I went back to school and then I went to Europe and then I entered a Trappist monastery and then I got married and everything. And then I went to India and then I, so, but I mean, I can't remember, but I think, well, I, I, my, my participation in Zen got stronger in the eighties. Mm-hmm. 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 And right. now it's uh, now I uh, I'm uh, just full bore with practice with Sherry Huber. 
Yeah. In fact, I was just talking to my twin brother about uh, how there was this. I was going to. Have you ever heard of the Diamond Approach School in Berkeley? Yeah. Anyway, I was with them for eight or nine years, and Hamid, the founder of the school, said, uh, "You have to find a, a system, a school, a teacher who helps you crack the code." And the code being your resistance to unwinding and letting true nature arise. And so I tried seven or ten different platforms of practice until I I met Sherry Huber. Mm. And it's kind of funny because she's the least traditional of all the practices I've been in. Mm. And she's one who certainly celebrates, I don't care what people think of me. There's been apparently some protest in traditional Zen circles that she has no credentials and no right to teach because she hasn't been, what do they call it, she hasn't had the Dharma transmission. Mm -hmm. She would say something like, well, you know what, Uh, you don't need no dang tradition. Like, if you get it, you get it. Mm-hmm. So she's my kind of girl. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I understand that. Um, yeah. Suzuki Roshi said there was uh, a farmer in his area that was more enlightened than the priests around there. Ah! <laughs> uh, in fact, in fact uh, right here, I'm in my kitchen, and I have a little quote from him. Uh-huh. Suzuki says, moment after moment, to watch your breathing, comma, to watch your posture, comma, is true nature. There is no secret beyond this point. Yeah. So once you get the basic training on sitting, and then you just trust the process, and you have a guide, a teacher who's a guide to say, well, am I on the wrong track here? Oh, yeah, okay, I get it. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Ah. Um. You know. Um. When you were in Bempu, you. No, no. You, you. When you came to Bempu, you came with some guy you knew in India, and he sounded right. pretty uh, interesting. Now, no. What, what's oh, what's guy, that about? He was. So, uh, in. In India, in 1978, Rajneesh was very popular, and housing for Westerners was, like, scarce. I mean, it was really impossible. And I was there, like, my first day, kind of bewildered, and this uh, Japanese guy looked like a prince. Long, long, wavy hair, little goatee mustache. Came up to me and bowed like a samurai, says, I have special room for you. I'm thinking, huh? Is this a joke or something? And I said, okay. I mean, I was up for anything. And so he took me to this uh, beautiful compound for the armed guard. And there was like maybe 10 apartments in this beautiful building. And uh, it was a flat with Japanese people. And I think there were like four bedrooms. And uh, I was given a room. For very little rent, 
and uh, one of the roommates was uh, a writer, and his name was Jun Hoshikawa. And he had written a very, very popular book about Rajneesh, the first book in a foreign language about Rajneesh. Mm -hmm. So he became a kind of a huge celebrity, which he never, never felt comfortable with. And uh, anyway, we had some big adventures, and uh, which I won't go into, but pretty wild. And then uh, he invited me to come to uh, Beppu with him because he had been hired to do a translation on Gurdjieff's meetings with remarkable men. Mm. And uh, I had spent two years in a Gurdjieff school in New York, so I had some handle on the topic. So, uh, yeah, we spent four months there. Where? So, uh, at the monastery in Beppu. In, you mean at, at, at Rio Yamada's temple, at his father's the temple? Temple, monastery, right, yeah, his father's. Uh, who, was still, who was still there, but... Uh, kind of kept to himself a lot. Yeah. Oh, well, that was a phase for him. I mean, he went on to do a lot of things. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's very interesting. Uh, hmm. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on? This sort of completes the stuff I think we didn't get to that I know of in the when we talked last time. This whole invitation kind of took me by surprise. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, so uh, it's, it, it's, I did look at your, your website at uh, your list of people who have been interviewed on your podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, th- I suspect most of them had stronger ties to uh, San Francisco Zen Center. Yeah, not everybody. Uh, I, I, oh, well, anyway. Uh, Most, yeah. I'm not looking for any sort of uh, acknowledgement, anyone. At another time in my life, I would have, but uh, I think I'm really beginning to get a handle on the practice of emptiness. Mm-hmm. I mean, it feels so spacious spaciousness of emptiness. So, uh, you know, I have some books. I don't care about books. I don't care about credentials. I care about inner spaciousness. Mm. And I thank my brother for taking me aside and introducing me to practice. Mm. Yeah, you've had quite a varied experience uh, with practice. You're your way-seeking mind story is good. It's uh, it's uh, uh, full of uh, spice. Yep. <laughs> anyway, David, uh, I feel complete. Uh, thank you so much for the opportunity. And uh, next time you're in San Rafael, give us a yell and we'll go do lunch at the Panama. Yeah, absolutely. I will do. Thanks a lot. It's been really All interesting. Right. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Take care. Happy trails. You too. Bye-bye. So thank you very much, Rico Provenzoli. That was, uh, hmm, that was uh, pretty 
pretty cool path you've been on. And I'm glad you're so satisfied with where you're living and the teacher you have. That's really great. Uh, I was just contacted today about somebody who's tried all sorts of different teachings and teachers. And uh, I mentioned you, and I said, well, you know, I've talked to a number of people who've done that, and quite often they're they're rather satisfied with uh, what, you know, they came up with later in life. So uh, we'll see what happens with them. Um, so uh, he mentions uh, that when uh, Paul Provisoli went to the East Coast, he was going to help the opening of a, a Zendo, he thought maybe Green Mountain, now, I see a Green uh, River uh, Zen Center in Massachusetts. But um, the um, uh, there was um, the Valley Zendo was started back then. And uh, actually, Zen Center had something to do with it. It was started by monks of Kosho, Uchiyama, and, uh, in, in Japan. Uh, and... Um, Shohaku Okamura was, was one of the ones who came early on and practiced and taught there and, and, uh, Fujita. But, um, there were, uh, some other monks earlier around, I think around 67. I'm not sure. Um, uh, I've actually got it on Kuk.com. It's Valley Zendo in Massachusetts. Um, and, um, uh, it it uh, came about because uh, uh, Shunyu Suzuki had recommended to Dorothy Shock that she uh, ask Uchiyama to send over somebody because he didn't feel uh, Zen Center could spare an older student to go help her get a Zendo going there. Uh, anyway, there's quite a history there with uh, Shunyu Suzuki in New England and this is all tied in with it, uh, but it uh, branched off from the Shunyu Suzuki lineage into the Uchiyama one and has been managed, just kept going. It's rather strict, and uh, uh, I understand, but um, also, you know, has a very good reputation, and there's a lot of practice centers there, and it's one that has survived. Valley Zendo. Anyway, uh, so thanks a lot, Paul. Uh, really enjoyed it. And uh, uh, let's remember Paul's books. Uh, please don't tell my guru about his time with Rajneesh uh, in Pune. And um, Golf Between the Ears, about uh, some high school students. Uh, uh, the effect that transcendental meditation had on them uh, in uh, competitive golf. Okay. This has been a Cuke Audio Podcast. I'm DC, Puba of Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives, coming to you from Sleepy Sanur with Dog and Bandita and dear, lovely Katrinka. And we're wishing you and yours and all of us a grand awakening. Thank you.